We invite you to take your Bibles and join us in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. We are interested in this particular paragraph this morning because it's the next paragraph. Some would say it's a very hard paragraph and there would be ample evidence or reason for having said that. I have preacher friends that would rather talk about money than talk about wives. But I'm not that guy. Although I love talking about money. Uh, money's just, just another thing where we get a chance to grow prove that we love God. <clears throat> so money's nothing to be scared of. But this subject is frightening because people have exceptions. They have exception clauses, or if you will, exception circumstances. And they said, yeah, that all sounds real good, except when this or that. And I will tell you that after all these years, I can tell you there are a lot of this and that. There's a lot. There's a lot of bad things, a lot of bad husbands, bad wives, a lot of difficult circumstances. And yet the Bible is our authority, not our experience in everything. So we must contend together, and this is the, another reason for the church, we don't have to walk the road of life alone. And some people have very difficult roads. And they really need the church. So for those of us who don't have those difficult roads, we need to be here to help those who have those roads. Turns out the church is vital to the plan of God. So in a minute we're going to read chapter 3, verse 1. And you'll note the... The focus of chapter 3, verse 1, is wives. And eventually, he's going to get to husbands. But it starts with wives. Now, I want to back up a minute so you understand the fuller context, the bigger context. Last week, we looked at two paragraphs pre previous, the, the last two sections of chapter 2. Verse 13, the admonition is to submit to authority and the authority in question here was the emperor. So you have citizens who are Christian citizens, which would be the case for most of us in this room, citizens of an earthly government, and we are commanded to submit or be subject to this earthly institution known as government, and specifically we are to honor the emperor. We mentioned a week ago that that's a challenge in our context because we operate in a free society where political dissent is actually encouraged and applauded by most people. And it's a basic freedom in our constitution that we have the freedom to say whatever we jolly well want about anybody uh, in politics. And so people turn it into blood sport and they feel like they've got to get out a jail card to say anything they want. It turns out as Christian people, you don't. Sorry. You don't. 
You're, you're commanded to honor the emperor, fear God. Those two words, two phrases are joined together at the end of verse 17. But the interesting thing is that he's addressing the less powerful, the citizen, over against the more powerful, the emperor. Then he turns in verse 18 to slaves and masters, and he addresses slaves. Again, the less powerful over against the masters, the more powerful. Now he comes in chapter 3, verse 1, and he talks to wives, the less powerful, over against husbands, the more powerful. And clearly, the power there is only physical. There is no suggestion in Scripture that women are inferior to men intellectually. In fact, there's not an educator in this room who will tell you that boys are smarter than girls. That is completely crazy. Nobody believes that, except crazy people. Uh, and clearly, uh, in, in terms of value, and, and that's the point that we're going to read at the end of verse 7, when he uh, commands the husband as to the husband's behavior, he reminds the husband that the husband has no, no spiritual advantage over the woman, the wife. None. None. So there, there is no spiritual pecking order. In fact, Galatians 3.28 tells us plainly, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew in the kingdom. There is only those who are followers of Christ. So these earthly distinctions have nothing to do with spiritual value. They have nothing to do with intellectual value. They have nothing to do with any semblance of worth. None of that is in the Bible. Anybody who builds that case builds it without the Bible. But the Bible does say there is a difference in role or responsibility. We are created for different purposes. Or when we enter into marriage, there is a very significant purpose. We're going to see that in a moment. But I want you to see and feel the context. So he's talking to the less powerful citizens, slaves, wives over against their relationship with the more powerful emperors, masters, husbands. And he's telling them, I bet you have it hard. And you're trying to process how to do hard. Because they really did have it hard. You know, our political system, it's not hard to be a citizen. It's not like we're being punished physically because we're citizens. None of us are slaves. I tried to make the application a week ago that it's probably best applied to our employer-employee relationship. But even as employees, we have no circumstances nearly as hard as a slave. And even in marriage, as hard as marriage is, and it is very hard for many people. It's not as hard as it was in the first century, where women have no value, no identity. They are treated as just one notch above slaves in terms of property. And yet, in the midst of that, still the rejoinder of Scripture is, submit to your husband. Very difficult. In certain circumstances. 
So we're going to read this and think about it as we apply it this morning. So let's read, beginning in verse 1, chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. By the way, the Bible never commands women to be subject to men. Ever. The Bible only commands wives to be subject to their own husbands. Don't misrepresent the Bible. Women are not to be submissive to men. Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. There is a difference. So that, verse 3, verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. One last thing for just awareness. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, he gives instructions to citizens to be subject to the emperor, honor the emperor. He gives no instruction to the emperor. In chapter 18, or rather verse 18, he, he gives instructions to servants as regards the masters, but he gives no instructions to the masters. Interesting, he, he addresses the less powerful, but he gives no instruction to the more powerful. But here with wives, he does save one verse for the husbands. And I am convinced there is a reason for that that we'll get to momentarily. So we're just going to make a couple of quick observations here and try to make application of these passages for our own lives. First of all, I want you to note that this command in verse 1 and again in verse 7, wives in 1, husbands in 7, is tied to one's relationship to God. It's not tied to culture. Some would say, well, you know, that's just a first century issue. That's the way they thought in the first century. And those critics who stand apart from the Bible today or apart from good theology today, voices in the culture, we'll call them, there are plenty of voices in the culture today that will say that's got nothing to do with today, that has everything to do with the first century and the way the first century was, to which I say, where does it say anything about what century this is relevant in? It doesn't. It doesn't tie any of this to culture. All of it is tied to your relationship to God. And the God of the first century is the God of the 21st century. And the people of the first century lived in different contexts, but their circumstances were identical. They were still men and women in marriage. 
And so here we are in the 21st century, and we're trying to apply this to our own lives. And it's not tied to culture. It's tied to one's relationship to God. And he does this with all three of these illustrations. Go back to chapter 2, verse 15. As regards citizens, he says of them, for this is the will of God. In verse 16, he says, do this as servants of God. As regards servants, in verse 19, he says of them that they are to obey this command because they are servants or they are mindful of God. Be mindful of God. In other words, you live under the authority of God. You live in the context with God. The only cultural circumstance that matters in these paragraphs is God. He's your culture. In verse 21, he says to these slaves, to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you. He ties it to the gospel. He ties it to Jesus. Jesus came submitted himself to the Father. By the way, there's no distinction in value, Father and Son. There's no distinction in purpose, Father and Son. There's only distinction in role, Father and Son. Only one comes to die for sinners. And he says in verse 21 that we have been called to submit to God even as Christ. Because he suffered, we are to follow him in the way of suffering. And in that context of that paragraph, it was servants and masters. And many would say today that they're called to suffer even in their marriage. Most would not say that, but I assure you, some will. <clears throat> but he makes the same distinction in, in regards to marriage, verse 1. Be subject to your own husband, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. By the way, that's a play on words. No pun intended. The pun here is on the word word. So they may be one without a word. To the word. And the reason they do that is because your obedience to the word has power. You don't understand that power. You don't see that power. Maybe you don't feel that power. Or maybe you grow impatient with that power. But in no way does the Bible negate the power. The fact that you don't see what God is doing in your life is a secondary matter. You're called to stay in the game, to be faithful. In verse 4, he says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. He ties it again to God's affirmation. What is God wanting to affirm in a wife's response to her husband in a marriage? He wants to affirm, not our physical adorning. I've said this many times. If God wanted us all to be beautiful people, he would have made us that. But turns out he didn't. So we're not all tall or thin or any other criteria that you think are important. We don't all have perfect skin. We don't. Just don't. We need to get over ourselves. 
Say, well, I'm, I'm working real hard to be, you know, stay young. Well, good luck with that, buddy. Good luck with that. Father time is undefeated. You're going to lose. He said, well, you know, I'm, I could postpone it a while. I'm not suggesting that's all wrong. I'm just, just suggesting that, you know, you might put that money in a 401k. <laughs> Leave it for Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't celebrate physical adorning at all. He's not suggesting that the braiding of hair, verse 3, or the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing we wear, is inconsequential. He's not suggesting that if you're trying to be stylish, that somehow you've got a problem. But I will tell you this, friend. There's a whole lot of dressing going on that has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with worldly approval. So don't let your adorning be external. That's true, man or woman. Because what is very precious, interesting that phrase, very precious. Think about that. How many times in the Bible do you think that's used? You'd be right. Not many. The Bible doesn't always say, you know, that's really, really, really extra special to God. But he does this, a gentle and quiet spirit of a wife very precious because God intends that to be a weapon in the arsenal of God <clears throat> so the command is tied to one's relationship to God this is not unusual in the scripture people will say well that's just what Peter thinks well let's read what Paul says first Peter rather first Timothy 2 9 Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Why would you wear that if you're professing godliness? Don't wear that. Don't look like that. Don't dress like that. Now, I assure you, there's no pressure from the world to think the way we've just described. There's no pressure from that. In fact, I would tell you that outside of maybe church and your righteous parents, whose voice may still be echoing in your ear, though they be deceased, or there's still maybe a physical voice you're hearing, you're not hearing this. If you're addicted to, pardon me, a consumer of social media, there is no voice in social media advocating modesty. There's no voice in any media advocating modesty. And yet, the issue here is not modesty. The issue here is the focus upon God. What do you really want to do with God? What do you want to, your life to represent? What do you want the voice? Listen, you're speaking whether you're speaking or not. You're talking whether you're talking or not. We hear you, buddy, whether you're saying anything or not. Because the minute you walked in, we heard what you're saying. We, we know what you're saying. And we can tell by your physical 
experience. Now, again, nobody's advocating ridiculous extremes. That's not the point. The point is, ultimately, you want to picture God. You want to profess God. You want, you want to say, I am joined to God. It's the witness of Christ. Think about Christ for a minute. I mean, if you, if you cut Christ, he bleeds God. He's not, he's not looking for money. He's not looking for worldly acclaim. He's not looking to build a kingdom on earth. He's not looking to put together a band of mighty people. Instead, he just picked a bunch of Galilean fishermen. He's not, you know, trying to, to start some sort of phenomenal movement that the world will be impressed with. Instead, he just came to do the will of God. And you say, well, you know, he only lived 30 plus years. He didn't have to live very long. I've been married for longer than Jesus was alive, and it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's some real difficult situations. Very difficult. But the command is tied to one's relationship to God, and you can't just wish it away. Somehow, the grace of God, the power of God, the strength of God, think about it this way. How did Jesus do it? Well, that's how I want to do it. How how was Jesus resourced? Well, that's the resource I need. How, How does all this work? It works by just doing what Jesus did, which is stay connected to God. That's how it works. How do wives submit to their own husbands? Again, the context, the greater context is powerful, less powerful. So emperor, emperor, back to chapter 2, verse 13, the emperor is a bad man. Slaves and masters. Again, it's not chattel slavery the way we're familiar with when we use the word slavery in the first century. It's not chattel slavery, but it's nonetheless slavery. You still have a master who can be overbearing and even a tyrant of some kind. So you have a powerful man who, for the most part, can be uh, have his moments of evil. Now you have a husband. And in this case, the reference here is to an unbelieving husband, right? Verse 1. So that even if some do not obey the word, they're not believers. The first commandment of God is believe the gospel. They're not believers. So you have an unbelieving man who acts like an unbeliever. Surprise, surprise. What are you to do with that? I'm going to kick him to the curb. Really? You didn't have that option in the first century. You got that option today. But that's not what the Bible tells us is the wise or obedient plan. It's tied to one's relationship to God. One commentator said it this way. I'll just read it verbatim. Wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands, and not even because she thinks he is wise. She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. That's why she submits. Because it's an act of worship. 
It's an act of devotion. And it's tied to God. Likewise, husbands, verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, commentators love that phrase because they have no idea what to do with it. You know, well, nobody can understand my wife. Well, absolutely. In fact, you are ground zero for that assignment. You're the first guy to understand her. You're the, you're the guy who's got the biggest job to do that. You say, well, I don't understand your wife. Well, really, it's not your big deal. It's my big deal. She's not in this service, by the way. <clears throat> and, you know, some of y'all love to go tell her everything I say. I need to chill, man, chill. This is going out on the airwaves. If I want her to know it, I'll teach her how to use the live stream. I'm kidding. She knows how to use a live stream. <laughs> but she really doesn't want to hear what I got to say, so, you know. So, okay. No, nah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a lot of things, but let's let the Bible speak right here. It says, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. So there's a couple of words there that stand out. What does it mean to live with your wife in an understanding way? Well, it includes honor and weaker. Honor and weaker. So let me describe it this way. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. Learn to read the room. All right? You understand. You understand her. You don't have to be a student of every woman. In fact, don't. Don't. A, it's confusing. B, it's not productive. C, it's borderline unrighteous. Maybe even blatantly unrighteous. Stop doing that. But be a student of your wife. Learn your wife. And live with her in an understanding way. First of all, showing her honor. She is your wife. You can go back to the Old Testament. The rebuke of God in the Minor Prophets includes dealing treacherously with the wives of their youth. So apparently in the Old Testament you have these men who are marrying young and they're sort of practicing serial marriage, serial monogamy. I had a wife, she lasted 20 years and got rid of her and got me another one. And they're dealing treacherously by divorcing the wife of their youth. You made a covenant for life, but turns out life only meant 20 years for you, or 15 years, or 12 years, or whatever number. And so the, the prophets in the Old Testament rebuke Israel for dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. Why do they do that? Because that does not picture what God intends marriage to be. Ephesians tells us that marriage is to be the picture of the gospel, the union of God to his son who he gives in marriage to the church. And the church and the son are forever inseparable. And so the groom and the bride, the bride of Christ, are joined together, and the church is to, we play the role. And what do we do in this dance with our husband, Christ? We submit. We don't tell Jesus what to do. We submit. And we honor him. And what does he do? He gives himself. 
He sacrifices himself for us. He buys us by the, by the money of the currency of his own blood. He buys us for himself, that he might sanctify us, that he might make us holy, that he might die to self in order that he might purchase for himself me, you, us. We are precious. And Jesus lives with us in an understanding way. The Bible says he sits at the right hand of the Father and he prays for us and he is compassionate, he is sympathetic to me. I I take great comfort in that. It is a precious thing in my heart to know that Jesus sympathizes with my weakness. He doesn't agree with my weakness, but he sympathizes. He is compassionate. So husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way, showing her honor. There is one woman who has submitted herself to you. And if you steamroll that, you dishonor God. You are not faithful. You are unrighteous. You are disobedient. And you're not the Christian you think you are. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Read the room. How do, you, how do you understand women? Sounds like your problem. Be a student. Lean in. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. So, well, I've been working on it. I still don't know how to get, you know, out of the batter's box. I'm just stuck. Well, get unstuck. Get some coaching. Figure out how to swing. How to stand. You don't know how to be married. Lots of guys know how to be married. They'll tell you. You're not the first turkey who ever tried to get married and didn't know what to do. Get smarter. And then he says, as a weaker vessel. Well, again, he doesn't mean intellectually. doesn't mean emotionally. Women are, as a rule, more tender. Praise God. But that doesn't mean they're weaker. There's more compassionate, more tender, perhaps. Not all, but some, dare say most, and we like that. That's why Mother's Day is bigger than Father's Day, because fathers aren't tender. They just, you know, business, get to business, get to work. Way to go, Dad. You know, here's your card. <laughs> Live with your wife as a weaker vessel. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean intellectually, it doesn't mean spiritually, it doesn't mean emotionally, it just means probably that you can out-arm wrestle her. It means that if you want to hurt her or abuse her, you probably can And if you do, you're going to go to jail. And we're going to help you go to jail. And then we're going to come visit you in jail and help you 
not do that again. But more importantly than any of that, you're not only going to go to jail, you're going to dishonor God, which is a much bigger deal. Because again, the purpose of marriage is to show Christ and his affection for his bride. And I want to ask you, which one of y'all has ever been hurt by Christ? None of us. So your role in this dance is to love with a sacrificial love and to live with your wife in an understanding way. And it's tied to your relationship to God. There's a second thing that's also obvious, and that is that your obedience is tied to your hope in God. It turns out that we who claim Christ are born again. Remember, that's the phrase he uses in verse 3 of chapter 1. You've been born again to a living hope. A living hope in God, in Christ, in the promises of God. So this command, these commands, verse 1 and verse 7, are tied to one's hope in God as new people. Notice how he phrases it in verse 5. For this is how, meaning putting your hope in a gentle and quiet spirit, not in the adornment of physical things. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. He gives specifics. Now Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now I'll start at the end of that. How is it that a woman would fear something that's frightening? Well, in the same way that a citizen would fear a rogue emperor or a slave would fear a rogue master, a wife is in a position to fear a bad husband who would wound her, hurt her, treat her badly, etc. That's why the very next verse is, don't be afraid. But submit to God, because God is your protector, and God has an assignment for the husbands. But that's not a guarantee that the husband's going to be a good man. That's not a guarantee that the wife is going to submit. But these are the commands of God. And as Christian people, we need to advance these truths among ourselves. Where are you going to hear this outside of the Bible, outside of the church? You're not going to hear this go to some movie and some woman has a bad marriage, what do they do? Get rid of him. Some celebrity. Are y'all sick and tired of celebrities? Okay. Enough of that. Um, We don't really care. It's your third marriage, your fifth marriage, your seventh marriage. You wear that like a badge. It's a badge of shame. It's not It's not righteous. So, what are we to do? We are to trust God. We're to look to God. We're to hope in God. We're to rely on God. We're to realize that God is up to something. And you'll notice he uses this illustration now in verse 5. This is how the holy women 
who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, not with clothes or jewelry or hair or whatever, but rather in submission to their own husbands. In other words, when you saw them, you didn't say, you know what, her hair really stands out. I mean, I know her for her hair. I know her for her jewelry. That's not the witness of these women of the Old Testament. He specifically mentioned Sarah. Sarah obeyed Abraham. And what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't highlight every marriage. Okay, so the, think with me for a minute. The Bible is a book about, for the most part, men. Men are in the Bible. I don't know what the ratio would be, but let's arbitrarily call it five to one, six to one, seven to one. There's a whole lot more men stories in the Bible than there are women stories in the Bible. So there's, there's a lot of men. And, and we don't know their wives. For instance, we, we, we know su- several, right? But, but and we know for the most part their names. Think about, think about David. David's wife that bears Solomon is Bathsheba. And all we know about Bathsheba is she used to be married to a man that David relied on and he trusted David, one of his generals, and he sent to the front lines of the war and got him killed so that David could marry his wife because she was pregnant with David's child that he impregnated her with against her will. No matter what anybody tell you, she was not a willing participant in that. So David had his way with a weaker vessel, took advantage of his authority, and so forth. We know about her name. Her name is Bathsheba. We don't know virtually nothing else about her because she's not the point. But Sarah, we know a lot about Sarah. Sarah is Abraham's wife. We know a lot about her because she, she plays a role in the, in the narrative that God wants And then we know that they have a son. His name is Isaac. And he marries a woman named Rebecca. And turns out we know a lot about Rebecca. And then they have a son. Jacob. And we know Jacob marries Rachel and Leah. And we know a lot about Rachel and Leah. Now you'll note here. In verse 5, for this is how the holy women, the the word women is plural. Now the illustration is singular. He mentions Sarah, but he, he says that Sarah is indicative of these old covenant women. And who are these women? Well, we don't know a lot of these Old Testament wives, except we do know the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about the number of times in the Bible we hear this, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people of Abraham, Isaac, and the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, 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 the followers of God, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We hear about these three guys repeatedly. The Bible constantly holds them up as the patriarchs and we know their wives. But after them, it's spotty, the record of wives. But we know these wives. Three men, four wives. We know them. And what is he saying about these wives? We don't know what their physical features were. We don't know what kind of clothes they were. We don't know what kind of jewelry. We don't know about their hair. All we know is their relationship to their husband. 
and their relationship to God. And that part we know. And why is that important? Because this is very precious to God. It turns out that the way a man loves his wife and the way a wife honors her husband is the most basic discipleship practice you're called to follow. You say, well, I've got an exception. I got this bad thing here, this bad man, this bad woman, whatever. Yep, there's some bad players in this dance. But God has called us to follow him. So marriage is one way, maybe even the way for many of you here today to follow Jesus. Hard as it may be, challenging as it may be. It's tied to your hope in God. Why did Sarah submit to Abraham? It turns out because of her hope in God. Why does he tell the husbands to treat their wives as weaker vessels? Because it's tied to your confidence in the life to come. Every single reason that people give for disobeying these two instructions has to do with this life and has nothing to do with the life to come. It turns out with God everything in this life is temporary and there's only one thing that is imperishable beauty and that is a quiet spirit who trusts in God. So let us lean into God to help us to be obedient. If you're married, follow the Bible. If you're not married, follow the Bible. May God give us grace to do it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercies today. We are blessed. We're grateful. We rejoice in your kindness. I thank you for my own personal experience of kindness. There is no one like you, God. And you have loved me. And you love me. And you always will love me. Don't let us forget that today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.